Good morning again, church. Wonderful, what a wonderful song service. Amen? Well, continue on with our sermon series, Encounters with Christ. Today's title, if you're taking notes, is Between Glory and Terror. Between Glory and Terror. This morning we're going to look at an encounter between Christ and Peter, and then we're going to look at a father who is a desperate man uh, who meets Christ. The glory. Somewhere between the glory, the power of God, and the terror of our own limitations. The terror of our own weakness. And the terror of our own fears. That's where we'll find ourselves this morning. Good morning, Murphy. Our story is found in Matthew, Mark, and John. Now, this is the first time that we've had any influence from the Gospel of John this morning. But we're going to go with Matthew because Matthew gives us the most detail about this encounter. But before we start the encounter, I want to talk to you a little bit about the difference between intellectual assent, mental assent, and faith. So I want to give you a little bit of story to illustrate what I'm talking about. When I was younger, one of my good friends was David Elam. And David decided that he wanted me to know the thrill and the joy of repelling. So Jack, he took me to White Rock Mountain. How many people here have been to White Rock Mountain? Okay, so you know what it looks like. Beautiful bluffs and vistas you can see for miles. Literally at night, you can stand out on the crag of the mountain and out on the outcropping that's a 300-foot bluff. And from there, 15 miles away, you can see the glow of the lights of the bridge at Ozark that go over the Arkansas River. And you can look to your, to your right just a little bit, and you can see all the way to Alma. And if you look over your shoulder there on the crag, you can see the glow of northwest Arkansas. It's just a beautiful place. And David took me there. Some of the cliffs were as high as I'm going on and off, aren't I? Let me see if I can deal with that real quick. now do you hear me at all just right some say am I there can you turn me up a little can you hear me there we go if that doesn't work I'll steal another microphone and we'll go from there now through this illustration John I, I, I want you all everybody in the crowd if you can if you can identify with this illustration, somewhere in the illustration, you just look at me while I'm looking around and you just raise your hand up like this. Because I want some feedback if you understand where I'm coming from. So David takes me up on this cliff. And the first thing he does is he takes and puts some nylon dressing, some nylon webbing, tubular webbing around me and makes a harness. Okay, this is back before we had climbing harnesses. So they just wrapped some tubular webbing around you, nylon webbing around you, and hooked you into a figure eight 
on a carabiner, right? And then David took that figure eight and he ran a rope through it. And then he took that rope and he tied it around about a 60-year-old oak tree on the side of the mountain. And he told me, just, just go back, Keith, and go over the edge. And I'm looking over the edge, and i got to tell you, 65 feet of sheer just rock, smooth rock. There's no way I could go over that without something to put my trust in. And so I start over, and I'm letting the rope slowly go out of my hands, and then something happens. I don't know what it is, but I can't move. And I begin to shake and quiver. Ranger. <laughs> Jack's been there. He knows that feeling. And so, so I, start to, I start to tug on the rope a little bit. I start to put a little pressure on the rope. And, and as, I, as I start to back off, I begin to trust that rope just a little bit. Susan and I really don't have any faith in that rope. I just kind of trust it just a little bit. You see, intellectually, Murphy, I, I, I know that that rope weighs, two th or that rope can take 2,000 pounds of stress. I understand that it would take a bulldozer, Mike, to push that tree off the side of that mountain that that rope is tied to. I understand that the figure eight that's connected to my, my climbing harness type thing around me can take 3,000 pounds of pressure before it starts to lose its integrity. But as I'm going over the edge, my body is screaming, no! And my head is saying, yes! Have you been there? But then... Then I start to go over the edge, and I start to lay my body back just a little bit, kind of like I'm sitting in a reclining chair. And suddenly, Gordon, I feel kind of worthless. I kind of feel like I'm floating. I kind of have this light feeling of joy, and my adrenaline's pumping. And so David says, kick out a little. And I say, huh? <laughs> kick out a little. And so I kicked out a little. And he said, now kick out a little and let go of the rope for just a second. And I said, huh? And so he tells me again, and I kick out, and, and I let go of the rope. And just for a moment, Melissa, it feels like I'm flying. I feel weightless. The exhilaration is incredible. And the next thing you know, I'm laughing and giggling and I'm kicking as hard as I can out and I'm totally letting the, the, the rope rush through my hands and I feel weightless and I'm taking risks all because now I have faith in the rope and the harness and the figure eight and the tree. That's faith. This morning I'm telling you that's faith. It's a process. It's a decision. It's intellectual honesty that I can't save myself. I can't fix everything. You see, I'm a finite person, 
And there's limitations to how much of my environment and my destiny I can control. And I have to trust in something. I have to trust in something that's greater than me. I have to go from believing to trust to faith. And when it's true faith, church, when it's true faith and it changes my behavior and it allows me to take huge risks because of whose I am. You see, some people will say that it's faith based upon knowledge. Tell you, I don't think it's faith until it changes your behavior. And when it changes your behavior, when it changes what you're willing to take risk in, then it's faith. So let's start our story this morning. A little bit of background information. Jesus has just got through feeding 5,000. Okay? He's taken a few loaves and a few fishes, and he's fed a crowd of 5,000 men, it says. So we probably have a huge mob of about 15,000 people. So we're going to let John give us the background before we start Matthew's story. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who is coming to the world. They started recognizing. The first step in faith is starting to recognize who Christ is. And they remembered Deuteronomy and those words of Moses. And they started saying, this is truly the prophet that's come to us into the world. So Jesus perceived that they were intending to come and take him by force and make him king. So he withdrew to the mountain by himself. You see, the last thing Jesus wanted messing up his ministry right now is this idea that it's going to be a military political power play to bring him into the kingdom. The last thing the disciples need to think is that, that this is going to be a military revolution. And I've got to tell you, because of the story we're about to read together and go through together, I think maybe they thought they were going to be king of their own destinies. That they were going to rule themselves. And maybe they started putting their faith in themselves and not Jesus Christ. So, let's pick up Matthew. Verse 22. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him. On the other side, while he sent the crowds away, he had sent the crowds away, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. But the boat was already a long distance from land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. The wind was contrary. I, I, you know, I, I don't know about you guys who have been out in the ocean before when the wind really starts howling, but contrary is not the word I use. John Mark or excuse me, John tells us in John 6 that they're at least three to four miles off the shoreline. So to give you an idea of, if you go to Beaver at its, at its widest place, I believe it's there at Rocky Branch, and you look from one side to the other. Have you been there? Looked across, that's only two miles. They're twice that distance from the shore from east to west, from north to south, 
they're probably about a six miles. So they're in the middle of the sea, and they're traveling. They're traveling from east to north. And the wind, this is in the summertime, and the wind is coming from the north, and it's pushing them back. They're trying to get home, but they can't because this wind is pushing them to back. They can't get back to Capernaum. They can't get back to that area. And the wind is pushing them back. And, and, and John, excuse me, and uh, Mark 6 tells us that they're straining at the oars. And they're not getting anywhere. They're stuck. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. When I was a kid, I used to read this. They cried out in fear that it was a ghost. But, Nicole, that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is they cried out. They thought, it's a ghost. And then they started crying like little sissies in the boat because they were scared to death. They were terrified. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. Now, in the three accounts that we have, Levi, of, of, of all of this story, they give a little bit different perspective, and the words are a little bit different, until we get here. It is I, do not be afraid. And when you get there, they all agree that Jesus says, it is I, don't be afraid. I think it's one of those, those thin veil moments. You ever have a thin veil moment where you really felt like you could almost touch God? I got to tell you, when we lived in Orlando, Florida, I, I would take our days off and we would go to New Smyrna Beach. And, and New Smyrna Beach, you can drive on to the beach itself. And, and New Smyrna has some pretty good waves. And I love to play in the waves, but every once in a while, I would be lucky enough that there would be huge thunderstorms off the coast, off the east coast of New Smyrna. And it would create these huge swells. And it wouldn't create driving tall waves. It would create what I call bobbing waves. And I would swim about 150 feet out, 75 yards out in these huge swells. And Anna would just sit there on the shore so she could identify the body when they would bring it back. But I used to love to go out into that, Jack. And when I would get it right out in the middle of that, and the waves would be bobbing around me, just for a second, Margaret, just for a second, I would be so low in the ocean, and the waves would be so tall around me that I would come to the realization that I was tiny and insignificant all to myself. That I in the vast universe was nothing but a tiny little piece of carbon floating around in a massive ocean. And I got to tell you, those moments are caught somewhere between terror and the glory of God. And this morning, I think that's exactly where Peter is. Caught between terror and and the glory of God. Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. 
And he said, come. And oh, what I would have given. What, have I, what would I would have given, I mean, to just be a fly on the wall, to be a cushion in the boat, or to be an oar, and to see the reaction of the other 12 in the boat. What would they have said? Because i got to believe that James leans into John and goes, what did he say? And John looks over at James and goes, he's an idiot. I mean, really? What on earth are you thinking, Peter? But Peter's caught in the moment of terror between terror and the glory of God. And he says, if that's you, Lord, command me to get out of this boat and come to you. And Jesus says, you want to test faith? Come on. And Peter steps out of the boat. And he begins to walk to Jesus. Now i got to tell you. I know what the next verse says. That he looked around, he saw the size of the waves, and he began to sink. That's his humanity. That's the terror part. Okay, I get that. But can I tell you, you've got to see his incredible faith. Mike, there's a whole bunch of guys still in that boat, and Peter's the only one that had the faith to step out of it. Amen? Why don't we see that portion of the story? Why don't we make fun of the guys who are still in the boat talking about how crazy Peter is? He began to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Folks, I want to point out, he doesn't say, Oh, you of no good, worthless No, he says, hey, Peter, you got a little faith. Why'd you doubt? I'm looking for more, Peter. You got a little faith. That's good. But why did you doubt? Let's build that faith. He doesn't say, you don't have any faith. Your faith is no good. Your faith is not what I'm looking for. He said, hey, you got some faith. You've got a little bit of faith, but I'm looking for more. Why did you doubt? And when they got to the boat, and the way they got in the boat, the wind stopped, and those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, you are certainly God's son. It, it, it took terror for them to realize, to recognize the identity of Christ, the man in the boat. So what can we learn from this story? Number one, faith is strengthened by understanding but faith is a decision to trust. Do you understand that? Faith is strengthened by understanding, but faith is a decision to trust. Romans 10, 17 tells us that faith comes by hearing and hearing the words of God, hearing the words of Christ. But I've got to also tell you that you can memorize Scripture. You can study and study the Word of God, but at some time in your life, you've got to trust it. Amen? And then when it changes your behavior, that's faith. Number two, faith is not being doctrinally correct about everything, but a trust in God's sovereignty. 
a trust in God's power, a trust in God's transcendence, his ability to manipulate, control, make, and do all. So let me just walk through you with this about Peter's uh, doctrinally incorrect views throughout his lifetime, okay? So Jesus says, I'm going to die at the hands of the Pharisees, the Jews, the leaders of the church, and Peter rebukes him for it. There's a mistake, doctrine. Or how about he's in the garden. Peter's in the garden with Christ, and Malchus steps up to arrest Jesus, and Peter pulls a sword and lops his ear off because he thinks the kingdom of God is going to come through violence and a military coup. That's a pretty big, that's a pretty big problem in doctrine. And then how about, how about Peter doesn't understand that salvation is for Gentiles. And Jesus has to explain to him that it is. You see, the Old Testament said that there's all nations are going to be blessed through him. And Peter doesn't get that, and he thinks the Gentiles aren't going to be saved. So he has to lower a sheet or something like a sheet to him three times and then take him to Cornelius' house before he finally gets it. And then you think Peter's finally got his doctrine down, but he doesn't have his doctrine down because in Galatians 2, Paul has to come to him and explain to him, just because these Gentiles aren't circumcised, that doesn't make them second-class Christian citizens in the kingdom of heaven. So Peter, throughout his life, has had some real doctrinal problems. But you know what he's got and what God wants? Faithful us number three faith is on a spectrum and it dips and dives as it builds now think about this think about your own life your faith probably looks like a wave signal on its way up think about peter's life one minute he's walking on water the next he's sinking and crying out one moment he's telling Jesus, I'll never forsake you, Jesus. And then the next moment he's denying himself to, to a little slave girl sitting around a fire. He gives everything up and goes back to fishing. And, and then the next thing you know, he's giving the most impressive sermon Ever, where more people are saved at one time than any other history, than any other time in history at Pentecost, right? That's the normal wave of faith. Always growing, but dips and dives. Can you relate? Here's Peter in his first letter, his first letter or book read along with me what he says about faith so be truly glad there is a wonderful joy ahead 
even though you must endure many trials for a little while. These trials will show you that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold, though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. You love him even though you have never seen him. Though you do not see him now, you trust him. And you rejoice with glorious, inexpressible joy. The reward for trusting him will be salvation. Souls. Folks, Peter in the end starts understanding what's valuable and what's to be valued. Peter understands what the Hebrew writer says, Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe in him and that he exists and he rewards those who diligently seek him. Without the faith that he exists and that he rewards people who diligently seek him, you don't have the right kind of faith and you can't make him happy. You can't Please God until you have that kind of faith. Our next encounter is found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. If you've got a Bible, open it up to Mark 9. Let your finger fall down to verse 14. This is about a demon-possessed son and a father that has nothing to lose. He's tried everything, but he recognizes He's helpless to save his son, and now he's wondering, can Jesus make a difference? Peter, James, and John, and Christ have been on the mountain. We call it the Mount of Transfiguration. They come down from the mount, and they see this huge crowd around a young man. And Jesus walks up and says, what's going on here? And a father steps forward and he says, Teacher, I, I brought you my son. I, I brought my son to your disciples. And they can't seem to throw this demon out. He, he's mute. He throws himself to the ground. He grinds his teeth. He stiffens up. He, he, he throws himself into the water. He throws himself into the fire. This demon has tried to kill him many times. And I'm just wondering... If you have splognitima, that's the Greek word here. If you have compassion, mercy, if you can, can you save him? Can you cast the demon out? And Jesus says, if I can, if I can, All things are possible if you'll just believe. And then i got to tell you, this father responds in one of the most honest sentences ever uttered in the New Testament. He says, I do believe. Help my unbelief. 
can I tell you, that expression ought to be coming from all of us all the time. I do believe, but I want more. Help me with my unbelief. Help me take risk on your behalf. Help me do incredible things knowing that you can make all things possible. Number four, this is the last point. Faith is on a spectrum from believing to perfect faith. Faith starts way over there and recognizing Jesus is the Son of God, that one who Moses told us was coming. And it ends, Mike, way out there somewhere that we'll never get to, but we're to strive for in perfect faith. I want you to understand this this morning, church, that if you're struggling with your faith, that's okay. David, who is a man after God's own heart, wrote a book called Psalms, and about a third of all the Psalms, is David wrestling with his faith with God. And God's got big shoulders and he can handle it. Amen? It's okay to question your faith. Because David did. It was all right. It is all right. We're on a spectrum from just, Gordon, from just knowing who Christ is, from just getting an idea that he's the Son of God to perfect faith. So I asked you this morning, have you encountered Christ? When you encounter Christ, you come to a realization that faith is what saves you. Not your performance, not your perfect doctrine, not your understanding, but your faith. It is your faith that saves you. We need never forget what Paul says in Ephesians. For by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. This morning, do you believe Jesus is the man God who can still the storms of your life, who can walk on water, do the supernatural? Do you believe he's the Jesus, the Messiah that on the third day that rose from the grave? Do you believe that he is the one that extends salvation to you? If you do this morning, if you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and you're walking by faith, that's great. But if you haven't made that commitment to him to walk by faith, what are you waiting on? What are you waiting for? He stands there if you'll just call his name, even if you're sinking, he'll reach out and he'll save you. Fear not. Stop. Won't you stand as we sing? I believe in the one they call Jesus.